0: Subscribe to the Cyblogs podcast in iTunes or on the Cyblogs website, www.syblogs.co.nz. Also, find us on Facebook and on Twitter at CyblogsNZ.
1: On the Sideblogs podcast this week, concerns over a free trade agreement that could have major implications for intellectual property protection, a British professor on the fight for control of the internet, and playing chicken with viruses. Welcome to the Sideblogs podcast, it's Friday the 13th, yes, Friday the 13th of July, episode 36, I'm Peter Griffin, coming to you from the Science Media Centre in Wellington with that Weekly mix of science news and views with a distinctly Kiwi spin. Actually, less science and more tech this week. I've spent the last couple of days at NetHui in Auckland. Now, this is Internet New Zealand's annual conference where everything internet is discussed. I was facilitating a discussion on trolling on the internet, uh, how it's evolved in the last 20 years, and how people deal with the few who occupy comment threads on blogs and discussion forums – Uh, but make it toxic for everyone else. So that was pretty interesting. But a major topic of discussion uh, at NetHui was the openness of the Internet and what many see as efforts to control the Internet, threatening that openness that has made the Internet such a great force for change. Soon you'll hear from a whole bunch of NetHui attendees who have a lot to say about the so-called Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which New Zealand is currently negotiating with many other countries and which could have implications for intellectual property use here in New Zealand if we sign up to the agreement. We'll also hear from Professor John Norton, author of From Gutenberg to Zuckerberg, about the larger fight for control of the internet overall. And we look at one of the big science stories of the week, one out of Australia, where research shows evidence that vaccines containing live viruses to prevent diseases in chickens have crossed over to produce new virulent strains with potentially lethal consequences for the chickens anyway. The Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement is a multilateral free trade agreement that aims to further liberalise the economies of the Asia-Pacific region. New Zealand is involved in the negotiations which have drawn significant criticism due to their secretive nature. The only reason we really know what is being proposed in the TPPA is because of leaks of documents. One draft leaked revealed proposed intellectual property provisions that could see, for instance, copyright expiration extended from 50 years after the death of an author to 70 years. It could see copyright holders veto parallel importing of books, DVDs and computer software. And it could also, as you'll soon hear, criminalize circumvention of mechanisms designed to protect copyright, such as digital rights management software, or even something pretty innocuous like DVD zoning restrictions. The TPPA countries just finished up their 13th round of negotiations in sunny San Diego, a session at NetHui looked at the implications of the TPPA and saw the launch by Internet New Zealand off a website, fairdeal.net.nz. This is to raise awareness of the TPP and the potential fishhooks in it for New Zealand. Daniel Spector works for Wellington open source software maker Catalyst IT. He has also closely watched the TPP negotiations evolve and participated in numerous workshops around the world on it. Here's what he had to say.
2: TPP is not a free trade agreement. It is a HQTA. it is a high quality trade agreement. The US themselves dropped the free word from it over two years ago. Do not refer to an FTA. This is not free in any way, shape, or form. Thank you. Uh, Next, uh, as far as dairy concessions go, well, nobody's done the math. We don't know if they'll be good or not. But we do have the, yes, Australian F correctly used TA where in Australia was promised benefits to their sugar industry, which did not materialize. And
0: our meat, and our every other industry.
2: And your meat, and your every other industry, thank you. And just because there are statements of intent, does not mean that anything we are promised will actually come to pass. However, New Zealand, and I love it here, I live here by choice, I'm going to stay here, (laughs) We're good people, we're honest people, and we'll do our damnedest to uphold our end of the agreement we're getting screwed on.
1: David Farrer is the political pollster and center-right blogger who runs KiwiBlog, one of the most popular blogs in the country. Now he's from the right, but he too is concerned about the IP chapter in the TPP.
3: Gross
4: certainly understands the issues, and to give credit, the government position for now is the correct one which is we don't want any change to our law and won't agree to any provisions there. The unknown is what gets offered up in its changed. There's three possibilities at a very broad level. The first is a really bad deal on trade access, like the Australian one, which was more if and name and substance, and them trying to have really bad IP chat. The best outcome for those who do think lowering trade barriers is a good thing is great trade access and no IP chapter that requires change to our law. The difficult one is where you actually get some quite good trade access, but there is some stuff you don't like on the IP side. That is going to be a decision made by the Prime Minister and Tim Gross probably saying I think we go for it or we don't. Well, so, Sorry,
5: Sorry not to Mr. No, 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 not no. not a big player
4: in this. Look, Gross is the professional here, and his happens, advice to the PM will be key. So, what ultimately we need this campaign. We'll, we'll try meeting people, but business friends who actually can get in the PM's ear and make that case. He's aware the PM has said the biggest issue isn't patents, uh, not patents, the pharmaceuticals. It's not Farmac, it's not this, it's the IP chapter. So he's aware this is the big sticking one. That may be bad, but it means it's the one to trade off, or it may be good that he understands we don't want to.
1: Professor Anne Fitzgerald is a Brisbane-based intellectual property and e-commerce lawyer. She's a professor in law research at QUT Law School and has been deeply involved in the Creative Commons organisation in Australia. She's looked at the Australian Free Trade Agreement, what came out of it or didn't for Australia, and what we could potentially learn from that free trade agreement negotiation process that we could apply to the TPP. The
0: most important thing, I think, when we actually reviewed the Australian Free Trade Agreement experience, is, okay, what you've got to focus on is go back to the whole purpose of IP and copyright patents, and you've got to ensure that the outcome is one that actually promotes innovation in your own economy and in the American economy, and if this is actually a multilateral agreement, in the economies of the other countries. That's what we did not do in Australia, and that's where, fundamentally, we went wrong. The committee that looked at um, some of the economic issues was the Productivity Commission, so that was 2010, that report, um, essentially, there are three reasons why you do why you're going to an IP chapter. Okay, one is to actually um, promote the uh, a strong IP system which attracts foreign direct investment. The second is to ensure the flow of revenue back to the party, which is really the predominant exporter of IP goods. So in Australia, that's obviously the United States. big Trade balance there. The other one is. Uh, promote innovation. What we did not do uh, is promote innovation. What's happened since then is a very, very important point, is that the hard work of actually reworking copyright and the patent system to actually promote innovation, IP Australia led its own inquiry, consultations, etc., which led to the enactment of the Raising the Bar patent bill, so we're not actually patenting at too low a level. A lot of the work, we could have actually develop entirely new information markets if we'd freed up a lot of the government copyright material. That was not done in the AUS FTA. We've actually done that by implementing Creative Commons throughout the government sector, which is now essentially the, the default. That's freed up the information, the copyright material, for reuse to create a whole, whole new information market. So that's,
1: to me, that's the answer. That's the way go. Judge David Hivey is a tech-savvy district court judge in Auckland. Judge Harvey is hearing the Kim.com extradition case in which the mega-upload founder may face serious charges in the U.S. for allegedly hosting and profiting from illegal trade in copyrighted materials such as movies and music. Harvey recently ordered the FBI to give .com and his co-accused copies of evidence which would be used to prove the charges they faced. It seems like a given, but the prosecution were actually arguing that Dotcom and his defence counsel didn't actually need access to all of the material. He also appeared at NetHui in a private capacity where he voiced his own concerns about the TPP, particularly in relation to the technology prevention measures it may require member countries to enforce.
3: I'd like to take this down to a personal level, because I said earlier on today, (laughs) change in copyright law is going to affect every single one of us, and here's how it works. Within the copyright spectrum, there are two types of rights. There's the the author's right, if you like, the control of copying. But there are also secondary rights that sit underneath those. And what has been referred to by the Australian High Court as para-copyright. That is the involvement of technological protection measures. Now, there are technological protection measures of all all sorts of different flavours. And one of the flavours is those that, that stops you from accessing a Region 1 DVD on your Region 4 DVD plan. Now you can hack around that, and you can do that under New Zealand law, perfectly legitimately, under the 2008 amendments to the Copyright Act, because access was the issue, copying was not. Under TPP, and the American Digital Millennium Copyright Act provisions, you will not be allowed to do that. That will be prohibited, point one. Point two, If you do, you will be a criminal. That's what will happen. Now, even before the 2008 amendments, it wasn't criminalised. There are all sorts of ways that this whole thing is being ramped up. And if I can use Russell's tweet from earlier on, we have met the enemy, and he is US.
1: That was Judge David Harvey on the implications of the TPP. A while back, I spoke to John Norton, professor of the public understanding of technology at the Open University in the UK and a technology columnist for The Observer. He's just put out a book from Guttenberg to Zuckerberg, Everything You Really Need to Know About the Internet. I asked him about copyright, intellectual property, and the fight underway to control and regulate what is done over the Internet. There
5: was always going to be uh, a real struggle to control it. Mm-hmm. And the point about... Uh, about the past is that in the case of other networks, they have in the end come under control. And so the big question for us is whether or not the same will happen to the net. I think there are good arguments either way. What's what's absolutely clear is that most of the established order, the big corporations, big governments, and so on, what they really hate is the idea of this network that is generative, in other words, that it it is an enabler of permissionless innovation. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's very unruly, and they regard that as being very dangerous sometimes, and they don't like it. And they'd really like to find some way of controlling it. The forces for controlling of come, it come from two sides. I mean, they come from industry, of course. Lots of companies like Apple and Google and Facebook in particular, um, and the big telcos, they're all very keen on, on getting some grip on this. And governments are very keen, and for different reasons, to get a grip on this.
1: If you look at the, the, the top 10 websites, you know, there's a huge amount of concentration of power there.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's all down to us, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we, 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 we jump like lemmings over this cliff, And when you see the, I don't know whether you saw the, the, the news footage, but of, of um, Apple opened, a, was opening a, 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 an Apple store to sell the iPhone 4, is it, in, in Beijing? and and there was an enormous crowd gathered outside it, and eventually it was decided for some reason rather not, not to open the store, and there was a kind of riot. That's a really interesting case. I mean, this is, this is, these are people who are basically rioting because they're not allowed to become enslaved. As well. That's really kind of weird. That's, that's the bit that really uh, uh, gets me sometimes at the moment. But that's, and that's why I think Huxley was, <laughs> Huxley was kind of spot on, which is that... It's easier to control people by delighting them. You know, it's a better motivator
1: than fear. One of the, the key sort of flashpoint issues that em- embodies these arguments really is copyright. And we're, we're seeing around the world, just here last year in New Zealand, the three strikes law was introduced. So people will be, uh, go before the copyright tribunal if if they've been caught downloading um, material illegally three times. You know, you talk there prohibition didn't work in the thirties for, for alcohol, but it seems to be just um, an inability to legitimize, for instance, the BitTorrent model to come up with a, a reasonable business model to, to, to make it work on a large scale outside of, of, for instance, iTunes.
5: What you're looking at is the kind of threshing of a system trying to cope with something new. Mm. And sooner or later, it'll figure it out. It's a bit like WikiLeaks, but the established order is going to have to... It's going to have to live with the, with the with the contradiction that it now has to face. First of all, actually our societies now cannot do without the net. Governments and industries can't do without the net. I mean, one of the lessons of the Egyptian thing, for example. Yeah. You may remember, but the Ubaric the, the regime pulled the plug for five days on the net.
1: Yeah.
5: In Egypt. Well, actually what happened was that um, the the Egyptian military is like the, um, like the Pakistani military. It's a vast kind of... Uh, Commercial operations because they run a lot of businesses. And what they discovered in the five days that they had just be dipped off the net is that their businesses were losing something like $100 million a day.
1: Wow.
5: Okay? Yeah. So after five days of this, they saw the lights and switched back on. Now, so the first point is that actually our societies are now at the stage where, whether they like it or not, they can't do without the net. Okay?
1: Yeah.
5: Now, so that's that's the first reality. The second thing is that, of course, there's all kinds of angst, commercial, uh, legal and otherwise, about some of the things that the net this, this network also enables people to do, whether it's a list downloading or whatever. But it, but in the end, uh, our societies are going to have to come around thinking, well, on the one hand, we can't do a lot of this stuff. And on the other hand, it has certain kinds of affordances or properties that enable things that are awkward or difficult or unpleasant for us. To happen and we have to find a way of modifying our legal regimes to reach some sort of satisfactory compromise right and we're only in the early stages of that yeah so all that new strike stuff and the rest of it is like the reflex twitching of a corpse <laughs> and i'm i'm not saying hmm. that i approve of piracy i don't i don't think that downloading by gene is necessarily piracy though we, we have to find some way of dealing with this and in, in Duke we have to find it because we can't do without the network yeah um, in due course we will, but because none of us takes a long view of this, mm. we're inclined to kind of get stuck into these uh, rather, I don't know, simplified sort of arguments and, and discussions about this moment, which I would like us to escape
1: on a bit. Right. One, one of the most disruptive things I, I, I think internet-based uh, in the last couple of years has been WikiLeaks um, with the CableGate. And um, you talked about the move from being a... A pretty uh, independent Dropbox for sensitive documents to moving towards advocacy journalism, uh, partnering up with the media. Although that sort of went sour due to Julian Assange's relationship yeah. with Nick Davies and people like that. But d- do you think that move was necessary? As you say in the book, all this great information was being released, but it wasn't having a heck of a lot of impact. But I, I thought
5: that was the most interesting thing about WikiLeaks. Was it was there, that kind of that experimentation because? Mm. Uh, assange's original assumption which was that the truth would set us free so and mm-hmm. um, that once you release stuff then things will happen well he, so that, 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 that that's why I, I was fascinated by the way by this growth of the symbiotic relationship between between the the it whether the wikileaks model and the traditional journalism model because i thought that was a very very good example of symbiosis at work Right. The thing is that it, it, it shows that, um, again, that we're in the very early stages of this. Wikileaks was the first, in a sense, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the, the, the controversy of the cable gates and the rest of it showed a period of very rapid experimentation, and somebody went badly wrong, and somebody went from went, went, went the US government's body to be badly right. It, it, it's the beginning of something, mm-hmm. and we have no idea what it's going to look like in mature form. And, 10 years' time. But the fact that WikiLeaks seems to be engulfed in some kind of
1: personality culture of flames or whatever because of the sound is kind of interesting to the media, but um, it's a side issue in the long run. You're talking there about um, the the idea of uh, Homo interneticus, uh, sort of a new species. There's actually quite, you know, I'm seeing coming across at my desk at the Science Media Centre, increasing... Amounts of you know papers, studies, evidence, peer-reviewed literature to suggest that you know literally we are changing um, from neurological point of view. Younger people are wired differently as a result of being digital natives. Is that really what you're
5: what you're hinting at there with
1: with that term Homo Interneticus? Uh, in a way, kind of going the logical conclusion of that.
5: The truth of the matter is that our, our brains seem to be quite plastic. Yeah. Uh, we know from I mean, we have the greatest values that we did a great experiment in this area with reading. We know that reading changes the brain because the structure of of the brains of illiterates is different from the structures of people who can read write. And we also know, I think, that there are differences in brain differences in the brain structures of Chinese speakers and 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 others. Mm. And so on. And all that shows is that because because reading is not not a natural innate thing, that the brain has to has to structure itself in order to master it. Mm -hmm. and it does. And I would say that it's therefore very unlikely that something similar or analogous is not happening to us in relation to the net because in order to master and use uh, the affordances of of the networks, we have to acquire different skills and that changes uh, the structures of our brains. Mm. That doesn't mean that we, we stop being human. It might change the ways that we think but it might not think. It might not change what we think about. Uh, it might not change our thoughts, as it were. It might change, but it does change us. There's no question. I'd say there's no question about that. And the the great puzzle is, of course, we don't know. We we really don't know the extent of this yet, and we don't know what its long-term implications are, and so on. We mm-hmm. just didn't know that for uh, for for Gutenberg.
1: That was Professor John Norton. Check out the show notes for a link to a listener article I wrote based on his book, From Gutenberg to Zuckerberg. Research published today in Science shows that three vaccines used to prevent respiratory disease in chickens have swapped genes, producing two lethal new strains that have killed tens of thousands of chickens across two states in Australia. The creation of the deadly new variant was only possible because the vaccines contained live viruses, even though they were weakened forms. Joanne Devlin, lead author of the paper, spoke to the Science Podcast about the implications of the findings.
6: So we've been investigating the cause of a large number of outbreaks of quite severe respiratory disease in poultry flocks in Australia, and we knew that the disease was due to a virus called infectious laryngotracheitis virus, and this is a herpes virus. But what was interesting is the strains that were causing the disease were new strains that we'd never seen before. So what we did was we sequenced the full genome of these new strains, and we also sequenced the genome of the vaccine strains that were being used at the time. And what we saw was that the new virus strains were actually recombinants from the different vaccine strains, which is something that's never been seen before in the field.
7: Okay. Well, let's dig down into that a little bit. First of all, let's talk a little bit about what first kind of raised questions or raised the alarm that this might be a problem, recombination of vaccine herpes viruses to form these virulent strains.
6: Okay. So under experimental conditions, we do know that herpes viruses are able to recombine. If two viruses infect the same cell at the same time. And in the lab, we've even seen recombination between mild strains generate quite a virulent virus. So we knew that it was possible, at least in theory. However, the chance of it occurring under natural conditions was always thought to be very remote, and that's because of the low likelihood of co infection of the same cell with two viruses mm. um, under natural conditions.
7: And so you wanted to look at whether this was happening in view of the emergence of these of these virulent strains in the field. How did you set up a study to actually look at this question?
6: Yes, yeah, so what we did is we looked at the two field strains that were causing most of the disease outbreaks, and we actually call them type eight and type nine viruses, and that's just based on a little test to look at their genetic profile, quite a simple test. What we did is we collected some isolates of these two different strains and we grew them up in the laboratory. And then we used high-throughput DNA sequencing to determine their entire genome sequence. And at the same time, we sequenced the entire genomes of all the three vaccine strains that were being used in the country at the time. And then we compared the genomes of the new viruses to the genomes of the vaccine strains.
7: And so what did you find from that? What came out of that analysis?
6: Yeah, so that was really interesting. What we found was that the genomes of the new field strains, some areas of the genome were identical or almost identical to one of the vaccine strains. But other areas of the field strains, or other areas of the genomes of the field strains, they were identical to a different vaccine strain. And this was based on the location and nature of some different genetic markers that were present in the DNA. And these were either SNPs, which stands for single nucleotide polymorphism, or INDEL, which is a term used to describe nucleotide insertions or deletions. I guess, usefully, herpes viruses, like other DNA viruses, are genetically very stable. So changes to the genetic sequence, like these SNPs and indels, don't arise very frequently by chance or by random mutations during viral replication. And so the patterns of these markers, the SNPs and the indels, in the new recombinant viruses are really easy to trace back to the vaccine strain mm-hmm. that gave rise to them. And I guess what we thought was particularly interesting is that we saw two different new recombinant viruses arise in such a short time, which is only about a year, and this to us suggests that vaccine recombination may not be such a rare event under these specific conditions.
7: Well, I guess that sort of leads to the broader question. We have evidence here that we have these different vaccines circulating in the population that can lead to this kind of recombination event. Do we have to worry about this kind of event for other viruses as well?
6: Yeah, well, I think it's something that we should definitely consider for other herpes viruses, against which we use multiple live vaccines in the same population. And this is certainly not uncommon in veterinary medicine. So in veterinary medicine, we use multiple live herpes virus vaccines to prevent disease in species like not only poultry, but also pigs and cattle and, and other species as well. In a way, though, we have known about recombination in other viruses for a long time, so In viruses such as influenza viruses, for example, which have segmented genomes, we've known for a very long time there's a high risk of reassortment between those individual gene segments from different parent viruses. And in influenza viruses, we manage the risk of reassortment by using inactivated vaccines because they're unable to recombine. So that's not something new. But what we see now, or what this research leads us to reconsider, is that now that we've seen it once in herpes viruses, it may be wise to reconsider this in other types of virus vaccines as well, vaccines that we've thought previously have had a low risk of recombination. This could include some of the unsegmented RNA viruses and also some of the other DNA viruses as well.
7: And you were looking at this in poultry. What about in human populations? How do these results kind of reflect on the risk in human vaccines?
6: So, I mean, human vaccines, we do use live attenuated vaccines in human medicine. But what's different in human medicine is that we don't see the use of multiple live vaccines in the one population. That's much more a feature of veterinary medicine.
7: So perhaps less of a risk of this kind of event in human vaccines, though not completely eliminated. For herpes virus in particular, and and for some of the other similar viruses that you mentioned, what can be done to kind of avoid this sort of outcome?
6: Yeah, so if we only use one live vaccine in a population at any one time, then this will prevent recombination occurring between vaccine strains. So in Australia, the relevant regulatory body, which is the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, they're already reviewing the labels of the vaccines to change the way that they're used and prevent recombination. So this might be something that we see happen for other viruses and other vaccines in other areas as well.
7: Joanne Devlin, thanks very much. My pleasure. Joanne Devlin
1: there talking to the Science Podcast, and that's our show for this week. Check out the show notes at cyblogs.co.nz. Follow us on Twitter at CyblogsNZ is our handle, or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash cyblogs. We'd love some feedback on the show. Tune in next Friday for more science news and views with a Kiwi Spin here on the Cyblogs Podcast.